We are studying through the book of Matthew, as most everyone here is aware of. Um, we're looking at it through the lens of the kingdom of God, but more specifically, the distinctiveness of the people who live within this kingdom. We've titled this series, Not of This World, Speaking of Us. We are not of this world. Um, and we've made it thus far up to chapter 5 of the Gospel of Matthew over the last number, number of weeks. And um, just so thankful already for what God is, I believe that he's doing in terms of just rooting us so deeply in this truth. And it's not just a, a truth that is something that is important for us to consider from time to time, but the reality of living in this space of understanding who we are as men, women, and children who are in the kingdom of God is of the utmost importance in this day and age. I, I was listening to something just recently, and uh, it was a podcast, and um, they were commenting on the radical turn that has happened over less than 30 years, really like between 20 and 30 years, culturally in terms of the shift. And um, it's interesting because as we look back, hindsight is twenty twenty. we go, oh yeah, man, that's come a long way since, you know, when I was a kid, it was this, this, and this. And um, it just seems like everywhere we look within culture, things are radically shifting. And by radically, it's not necessarily to the good, but it's just along the slipstream of the spirit of the age. And so to have ourselves planted so firmly in the kingdom of God to understand who we are as um, inhabitants of the kingdom and who the king is and the subsequent benefits and the power of the kingdom and um, all of the experiences that we have as his people is not only beneficial for us, but it's very grounding and necessary as we continue to walk with our faces uh, against, against the stream of life, of culture. So last week, Rick left us at, I think, a very significant place. Uh, we looked at the end of Matthew chapter 4, where um, he brought to us this, the, uh, the, the call of the kingdom. He spoke about the three different calls. But specifically, the call of the kingdom, the last, the third one, was not merely a call to good behavior, nor to moral aptitude, but it was a call into God's kingdom that is one that's focused on both our um, possession as well as our purpose. That a call into kingdom living is one that is possessive, as in it's not ours. We have been possessed by someone else. And in that possession, it does not just mean to place us somewhere that's comfortable and kind and enjoyable, but to possess us in such a way for a purpose that he has predetermined for us. And I thought it was just such a, a brilliant look at Matthew 4 in this lens of not of this world. And, and 1 Peter chapter 2.9, I want to just read it again at this moment, but it was the text where we somewhat landed on, and it says that you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you might proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So we are not only purchased, his purchased possession, but we are his purposed possession. We are both. And that purpose is the end of that statement or that scripture in verse nine, that you may proclaim his excellencies. That is the purpose of our possession. Now how we proclaim his excellencies we have to flesh out because there's many ways in which we proclaim the excellencies of him who has saved us. Paul says it this way in Ephesians chapter 2.10, a, a verse that we know well, for we are his workmanship, and he says, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. These good works then are modeled for us, and we see that in part as Jesus goes into his ministry after his baptism. And immediately he begins to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom. We see this in Matthew chapter 4. And following that gospel proclamation, we then begin to see the power of the kingdom through the healing of sick, through the releasing those who are under the bondage of darkness and demon possession. 
And it says that he went around teaching and proclaiming and healing every affliction among the people. This was the work of the kingdom, the power of the kingdom. And, and from this, he was basically, he was, what he was saying is, come and see. Come and see what this kingdom is. Come and see the benefits of the kingdom. Come and see the power of the kingdom. The fruit of the kingdom, the rule of the king. And so we come directly from this proclamation, from this work where Jesus is ministering and healing the sick, and we come directly into chapter 5. Before we look at the text, I want to just say something regarding um, this word beatitude. So the the larger text of of chapter 5 is, of course, the famous discourse of Jesus of the Sermon on the Mount. We know that very well, and the portion that we're going to look at today is verses 1 through 11, known as the Beatitudes. And I just want to say something before we look at the text, because I think it will be helpful as we move through it this morning, that the word Beatitude is translated into the word in English, as we know, of blessed. But the idea is not blessing from God, although, of course, we know we are blessed by God. But it's one to actually connote more of a state. Happiness could be a word. Uh, Fortunate, congratulatory are all words that that kind of give us an idea of the emphasis here that Matthew is going for when he uses the word blessed. It gives us this picture of the good life that the kingdom brings. That's the idea within this word. It's meant to connote a sense of commendation for the happy state that one who is in the kingdom finds themselves in and those who are looking into would then desire. So it speaks of our state, but it also speaks to those who would look and desire such the same and similar state. So let's look at Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure of heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you, And utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Lord, we receive your word today. Lord, we know that this portion of scripture which you have given to us is for our benefit, not just um, for our enjoyment, but for growth, Lord, for transformation and conformity into that which you are calling us to be. Lord, today we receive it with glad hearts, and we receive your spirit today in all that you would want to speak to us through this text, Lord. We ask, Father, that our eyes would be open to understand truth, and we ask, O Lord, that you would change us together into the community of God, preparing us, as we spoke of earlier, for the day when you will return. We thank you, Lord, today, and again, we receive it with glad hearts and unto your glory. In the name of Jesus Christ, we say, amen. Amen. So Matthew 5, I actually read through verse 12, I apologize. Matthew 5, 1 through 12 is the text that we're going to look at. As I said, it's a very familiar text. It's one which probably most of us at some point either memorized or sang some song to when we were young, stuffed our mouths with crackers when we were a little kid memorizing the Beatitudes. Um, However, I think just as always the warning is, becoming over-familiar with a text that we just blow right through it. And as we know, Scripture is so multifaceted. Because it is living and active, it's, you can flip it any which way at any time, and the Lord can show us something 
that he has not shown us before. And so we approach even the most familiar text with a, a sense of reverence and expectation and faith that God would speak to us. So let's have ourselves open to that today. And as I read those again, reflecting on that word blessed, not, again, not so much just the state of God's blessing on our life, but really a sense of joy and happiness and a picture of the kingdom life that is ours as sons and daughters of the king. So the Beatitudes, as I said, are the introductory portion into Matthew's famous Sermon on the Mount. And I was thinking about it this week. Of course, I'm not in any interest to change Scripture by any means, but I was thinking perhaps to offer up a subtitle to the chapter 5 of the Sermon on the Mount, something maybe a little bit more dynamic and pointed. And as I was thinking about it, what we're really looking at here is this. It's the ways of the kingdom. The Sermon on the Mount is the ways of the kingdom, and the Beatitudes is an entrance, it's an introduction to this kingdom ways, to this kingdom life. And that's Matthew's purpose in writing it and bringing it to us as he has. This is what Jesus' point was in going over the next few chapters that we'll see as he spoke in Matthew putting together 5, 6, and 7, and we'll look at those more in depth. But it's an introduction of an entrance into kingdom life. If Matthew 4, Jesus shows us the power of the kingdom that accompanies his kingdom rule, then in Matthew 5, he's going to show us what the ways of those who live within this kingdom are like. What do their lives look like? We speak of this distinctiveness of the Christian life. What does that practically mean? How do I live? That's what we're going to see. And right out of the gate in verse 1, there's something incredibly profound that I don't want to miss. And it's the statement of Jesus going up on the mountain. Stop for just a moment and think, what other profoundly significant event took place on a mountain? There were many, huh? But there's one of particular emphasis that I'm looking for this morning, and it's Sinai. It's Sinai. And it's Moses going up to the mountain... And he's what? He receives the law from God. And he delivers the law to the people. So it's this picture of the mountaintop being the place by which God disseminates the distinctives of his people. And so here, Matthew, knowing, of course, very well the Old Testament scriptures, and as we've seen as we've gotten to this point, is very much interested with the prophetic fulfillment of the Old Testament type that Jesus now is, the messianic fulfillment of the Old Testament foreshadowing. Matthew brings to us this picture of Jesus once again on a mountaintop. And the significance is this. He's saying, I'm going to do something new. Similar to the dissemination of the distinctives of this people that I have called to be my own. Now, as the new creation through Jesus Christ, this is how my people will look. This is how they will live These are the values. These are the ethics. This is the lifestyle of my people. And it's like wonderfully just, oh my gosh, look at this moment. And it helps us then to see the importance of what will follow as we look through these verses that we just read. It was God saying, this is how you are to behave. This is how you're to think to live, and to act. These are the ways of the new creation. These are the moral principles that will inform the behavior and the conduct of my people before a watching world. Much like the law was meant to reveal the character of God as he preserved and guided his people through the wilderness before the watching kingdoms, so too is this meant to be the distinctives, the conduct the moral principles by which we are guided that makes us distinct to a watching world and kingdom of this present evil age. So I want to give you three things and then we're actually going to look through these, through this lens, but I want to lay for you 
more of a broad stroke foundation of the intent of these eight or nine, depending on how you count them, beatitudes or statements of blessedness and happiness in the kingdom. Three things that they are not and three, three things that they are, which I believe are very important for us to see. The first one is this, what they are not. It is not a list of good behavior. It is not a list of do's and don'ts. It is not a list by which you bring your punch card and hit each one and say, man, I've made it and I've arrived. I can check that off today. And I say that flippantly, but you get my point. We run the risk of falling into moralism, of falling into legalism at best when we look at it in such a lens. Life in the kingdom begins right here. It begins from within. And it flows outward, which we're going to look at more in a moment. Remembering this is the definition that we brought of the kingdom of God weeks back. If the kingdom of God is the king's rule over the king's people in the king's place, that was the general definition that we brought for the kingdom of God, the king's rule over the king's people in the king's place, then the place in which this rule now it encompasses is the hearts of men and women and children. That is the place by which the kingdom is advanced. That's the place by which as we take the gospel as we spoke of a few weeks ago, looking at the ministry of John the Baptist, the voice that cries in the wilderness. The wilderness is the places of people's hearts who don't believe. And we take the gospel and we advance the kingdom as God advances through us, through his gospel message into people's hearts and minds. I read a quote this week as I was, um, I'm reading this book on gospel culture that I'm thoroughly enjoying, and he says this, we don't just come to a place where God dwells. We get to be the place where God dwells by the person of the Holy Spirit. That is a truth that I know we would probably all both agree with and say that we understand, but all oh, that we would truly understand the significance that we are the dwelling place for the Spirit of God how that would affect the things that we do, the things that we say, the things that we ingest, the things that we give ourselves to. I pray this morning that the Lord would expand our understanding, expand and open our hearts to really grasp more of what it is to be the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit. So kingdom living experientially, it begins within and it flows outward. The promise in the Old Testament is that I will take your heart of stone and I will replace it or give to you a heart of flesh. It's an inward work, first and foremost. The second thing that it is not is that it cannot be perfected in experience. It cannot be perfectly experienced, sorry. We must see this section of Matthew for what it is and the sense that it can't be fully attained, which is good news, huh? Is that an encouraging word? Actually, but it really is because this, the bar has been set so high, the demand is so great that only Jesus himself can fulfill that very thing. Only Jesus can fully attain that which he has commanded to and it's no different than when the law was given to the Israelites. The law was given that it would reveal the transgression even greater and drive them towards the need of a savior. So too, we can't attain these things. We won't be able to perfectly live them out. And that should drive us to the grace of God. That should drive us into the arms of our savior. God, you guys, we live with such a hope in such a, a wonderful place on this side of the cross, having received the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and the grace of God to live this life. And so, while yes, it brings to us a realization of our faithlessness sometimes in our ability to keep up and to fulfill, but it drives us with hope and thankfulness and humility into the arms of a merciful God 
who not only receives us, but he gives with us the power to live this life. Paul says in Romans 7, that the law came to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. The point here is that the grace of God abounding in us all the more. And the third thing that it is not is they are not only future promises. These eight statements of the good life of the kingdom are not just that we might look to a future hope, but they have a present realization both and a future hope to them. They are to be presently experienced and future fully realized. Do you know what I mean by that? That there is something now that we are to live in in this kingdom of God experientially. There is something now that we are to take a hold of and to apprehend for our life and simultaneously a hope of one day it's future consummation as Dean spoke of as we took and partook of the Lord's table today. Jesus' declaration that the kingdom of God is present on earth was the beginning, it was the inauguration of something that will not be fully realized until he comes again and ultimately completes that which he began. But it is not merely just future and its reward. And to not see this, I believe, is a great danger because it's to miss the blessing of living now here on earth as those under the rule of the king, as those that are inhabitants of the kingdom. Do you get what I'm saying in this? This is the present reality of the now and the not yet. This is what it means to live in the now and the not yet of the kingdom of, and the life of a Christian. We, ex, we live it experientially now in part, but one day we will experience it and see it in its fullness. That's the hope of the Christian life. So that is what they are not. This is what they are. Three things that it is. First off, they are an inward conviction which leads to an outward expression. They are an inward conviction that leads to an outward expression. As I said earlier, the place of the king, of his rule, is now in the hearts of men, women, and children. In quoting the prophet Jeremiah, the writer of Hebrews says in chapter 10, that this is the covenant that I will make with them, declares the Lord. I will put my laws on their hearts and I will write them on their minds. We do because we are. We act from who we are as those in the kingdom of God. And we do so because of the second point of what they are. They are a result of our new identity. They are a result of being a new creation in Christ Jesus. We do because we are. We are because Christ has made us such through the power of the cross. And as we've said many times leading up to this point, through the transference from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, into the kingdom of His Son, Jesus Christ, we have something new. We have spoken at great length over the past number of weeks regarding the new position of the Christian life. The position of the Christian life. Not just our condition, but where we have been placed in Christ Jesus as a new creation. And this placement, this new identity, it drives and it informs everything that we are, everything that we do and say and believe and understand. Dean read this scripture earlier from Corinthians, from 2 Corinthians 5. But I'll say it again. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The oldest passed away, and then he says, Behold, look, see, the new has come. Taste it, experience it, know it, apprehend it. The new has come. Jesus' rescue mission 
from this present earthly kingdom brings with it a complete new beginning. Not just a transference. Listen to this. Listen, please. It isn't just a transference of the old creation into the new, of the old man into the new man. It is something completely new. That is a very important distinctiveness because we've said this too recently. So often we try to bring what's old into what's new. But that isn't what this is telling us. He's saying the old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. He has started over with us again. The truthfulness of our identity in Christ is that we are new. Do we experience it in full? We don't. And that's that part of the now and the not yet. That's the part of living in the kingdom of God. But the truth is, is we will someday experience that in its fullness. But now, that which has been made provision for through Christ Jesus is ours to apprehend as the new creation. Freedom from sin is ours as the new creation. Does that mean that you won't sin? No. You probably will. You probably will sin. But it means that you can be free from the power of sin, from the guilt of sin, from the bondage of sin. That's amazing. This is the reality that you and I live in as those who are in Christ Jesus. You guys, this is radical. This should radically affect the way that we live our life, myself included. Oh Lord, would you open our eyes to understand this, to apply it to us this morning. Jesus Christ has severed the old man and the new. He severed it. He's cut it off. He took an ax to the root. So it begins inward and it flows outward because of our new identity. We do because who we are, who we are as new creations in Christ Jesus. And thirdly, what these statements are, because of these true truths, that kingdom life comes from our new position in Christ, and therefore from our hearts which have been made new, it is then that we can understand that kingdom living is a work of grace in our life. Missing an S in there somewhere. They're works of grace. These are works of grace. I'm making these statements before we even look at these these, these statements of, of happy states of kingdom living because this is so important. Because I could say anything else following this, but if we don't get this, if we don't grasp this, then we're gonna miss what God's intent is through these statements that we see in Matthew. They're an act of grace. So let's look now at quickly. What I'm going to do this morning is I want to just take these eight statements. I'm going to treat them as eight. There's some discussion as whether they're eight or nine. I don't think there's necessarily right or wrong at this moment. I'm going to take these eight and I'm going to clump them together and I want to look and see the, the, the movement of each one and because they're, they're progressively inward moving outward as we go through them. And as we look, I want you to be looking for the counterfeit statement that culture would speak and identify what that is. Because we could almost as easily just write eight statements of counterfeit of what culture says is the good life of the kingdom of the present age. But the point is, is that Matthew is saying this is what, of course, as I've been saying, that the kingdom of God is. So the first three are the... He says, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn, and blessed are the meek. And inward, it's inward moving outward. The poor in spirit, not poorness of character. This isn't poorness of character, but happy, let's think of that word. Happy are those who know their need of God. That is what Matthew is saying in this statement. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Happy are those 
who know their need of God. Isaiah 66, 2 says, All these my hand has made, and so all these things came to be, declares the Lord, but this is the one whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. This statement, it's a positive state of poverty. It's the opposite. The counterfeit is the self-confident. It's the arrogance that tramples the interests of others. It has a low view of God, if any at all. It's arrogant, it's puffed up, it's conceited. But what Matthew is saying here, under the inspiration, is that kingdom life, kingdom living, begins with those who understand their great need. And the promise, again, has present and future application, for theirs is the kingdom of God. What is this kingdom? He's saying they are those who not only gladly accept the king's rule, but they are those who therefore receive the benefits which come to its inhabitants, that come to those who live within the king's kingdom. And he doesn't say theirs will be the kingdom. He says there is the kingdom. Theirs is the kingdom. It's now. It's present. Happy are those who know their need of God for they will receive the benefits of the king. Blessed are those who mourn. Happy are those, this is not a mourning as in a personal grief, but a mourning as in a recognition of our wretchedness. A a recognition of our state of depravity outside of Christ Jesus. We know that outside of Christ, we are merely objects of his wrath. We are merely those who are under the judgment of God because of sin. But happy are those who know this, who recognize this. You see what I'm saying? This is the opposite of culture's liturgy, which has no low view of itself whatsoever, right? Because self is the highest and truest form to be realized. There's none above one's to to hold oneself in view of. If we are it, if we're the pinnacle, then there is no place of wretchedness. And if there is any sense of self-loathing or shame, we can rise above it. We can improve ourselves beyond it. We can will that in one another. No, the kingdom is, is the opposite. The kingdom of this age is the counterfeit. When we want to know Oftentimes, the kingdom of God, we look at the kingdom of this age and we just flip it upside down. Man holds a very high view of himself and a very low view of God, if any. But the kingdom of God is the opposite. It is Christ is all for all. And it is man is is wretched and in need of a savior. Think of Romans 1. What does he say? That they exchanged the truth for a lie and they worshiped the create, the creation over and above the creator. That is the liturgy of culture. And what is the promise for those who mourn? He says, they will be comforted. Their consolation is one to come. While our fortune may, no promises, be reversed on earth. Maybe, maybe not. We don't know. That promise is not there for us. Ultimately, it is Christ Jesus whom Luke calls the consolation of Israel who is our consolation and our promise of the good that will come to us one day. Yes? That's our future hope. And its present application is that it grounds us now, is that it holds us in place. Despite the sense of of knowing that we're undeserving, despite the sense of, of this perhaps understanding the wretched state from which we came and outside of Christ we would be, we still have the present reality that we are, as Dean said earlier, the righteousness of God, that we are a pleasure to God, and that one day 
our ultimate consolation will be. And I'm going to move more quickly here. Blessed are the meek. Happy are those who are humble and yielded to God. This isn't a weakness of character. Like, but like the poor in spirit, there's a recognition of powerlessness. Thank you. There's a recognition of powerlessness. And what do we see? Rather than the, the powerful, the, the cultural liturgy of the usurper, there's a recognition that there's nothing within us that is any good, that we don't hold anything that, that enables us to attain that which we hope for. But we're humble, we're contrite, we're low. For they too will inherit the earth. And in this statement, Matthew points us back to the book of Psalm. Psalm 3711, we won't turn there, but you can jot it down if you're taking notes. Psalm 3711 says this, for the meek shall inherit the land. This echoing to the kingdom of God, this echoes that which is the promise of the first two of the poor in spirit and those who mourn. This land being less of a temporal promise here in Matthew and more of an eternal hope that will be. Blessed are those who are meek. For theirs too will be the earth, the kingdom. The next three are those, the next two, I'm going to put them together hunger and thirst and pure in heart. And they're a little bit out of order. But again, I want to move from the inward to the external, from the internal to the external. So the first is blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Happy are those who are eager to live as God requires. This is a distinctive of the kingdom living. Happy are those who are eager to live as God requires. Jesus says in John chapter four, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. That's a statement of those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. My food, that which supplies me, that which sustains me, that which gives me life, that gives me energy, that gives me health, is to do the will of he who sent me. And now we see that the movement is moving externally. It's moving outward. <clears throat> it's a matter of priorities in life. Kingdom living is not reliant on bread alone, as Jesus would say in his temptation. It's not reliant on the temporal. Listen, it's not reliant to the temporal kingdom living. It's not anchored. There's no hope. There's no need for the temporal beyond the literal need of food and water. What does Jesus say? But on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Man doesn't live on the temporal, but man lives on the eternal. Man, the kingdom living lives in this, exists in this state outside of that which can be seen. And he says the promise is for those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. What does he say? They'll be satisfied. Again, this idea of being filled, of satiated, of being full to the brim. That's the promise that we have as we hunger and thirst, as we seek that which is eternal, as we seek righteousness. And the Lord promises that we will be filled. Blessed are the pure in heart. Sit down. Sit down. Happy are those who pursue, who pursue personal holiness and not just external conformity. Happy are those who pursue... <coughs> Excuse me. So sorry. Happy are those who pursue personal holiness and not just external conformity, for they shall see God. Revelation 22 says this, speaking of the Lord's people, they will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. That's the eternal promise. One day, as, as it was said earlier, we will stand in the face of God. As we sung one of those songs earlier, 
One day we will be, our eyes and gaze will be transfixed on Jesus' face. That is the consolation for those who pursue personal holiness. They will see God. The eternal blessing of the presence of God. And then lastly, the last three, again, moving from internal to external. Now we have these three statements. Blessed are the merciful, blessed are the peacemakers, and blessed are those who are persecuted. These final three, they find their actualization as the acts of those living in the kingdom of God. Happy are those whose attitude is generous and willing to see things from the other's perspective. That is the merciful, who are generous and willing to see things from the other's perspective. Not quick to take offense. In 1 Corinthians chapter 13, mercy is the root of Paul's discourse on love. Read it through that lens of mercy. It's ripe as he speaks of what love is. It's this, it has the underpinnings of mercy through it. It is this person who lives with such mercy that they in turn receive mercy, not from man, but from God. That's what he says here. That is the promise. This is so countercultural to the demand for revenge and perceived justice that we hear as the cry of this kingdom age. This says, I'm gonna set aside my preferences, I'm gonna set aside my perspective, and I'm gonna listen and see things from the way that you see them. It isn't about what I can receive, but it's about what I can give. And in so giving, our hope and our assurance is that we will in turn receive from him who is merciful perfectly. Blessed are the peacemakers is, is the statement of happy are those who make peace and pursue it. It's not just a disposition of peace, but an active pursuit of peace. That's a kingdom distinctive. Someone who is not just peaceful, but pursues peacemaking. We teach that to our children as much as we can. Are you a peacemaker in how you respond to your sibling? Are you bringing peace right now or are you bringing discord? This, this pursuit of peace is sought after over and above personal preference and its core lies reconciliation. And Dean read this text too as we began this morning where Paul says that all of this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us in return the ministry of reconciliation. That's, that's later just following 2 Corinthians 5.17 on being a new creation in Christ Jesus. That Jesus Christ has given to us because we've been reconciled to him, we now carry this ministry of reconciliation, this, this ministry of peacemaking, of pursuing it and enacting it as those who live within the kingdom, that's kingdom advancement. Now it's moving outward from this inner state of understanding of who we are. It now begins to move outward. It's the word that's used in the Hebrew of shalom, which isn't just an absence of conflict, but it's a right standing with God. It's this all is well in my life. That's what it is to be a peacemaker. Which the, what is the counterfeit within culture? It's equity, demand for equity, reciprocity, retribution. Those are things that culture cries for on the regular. Equity is a huge one. That's everywhere right now. That, isn't, that is not what the culture of the kingdom calls for. The culture of the kingdom calls to look at the other state and to pursue peace, and to, be, and to pursue reconciliation despite personal offense, despite personal perspective. And what is the promise of those who pursue that? They will be called the children of God. They will benefit as those loved for and cared for and affirmed by the Father. 
They will benefit as children benefits from a parent. And not only will they benefit, but they will reflect as children the character of their father who is in and of himself peace. And lastly, blessed are those who are persecuted. Happy are those who when living as peacemakers, listen to the statement, happy are those who when living as peacemakers and showing mercy are persecuted because you will be persecuted. When you pursue peace and when you pursue reconciliation in this current kingdom culture, the present evil age, you will be persecuted. But it is then that you will know that you are living in the face of culture. It's then that you will know that your face is against the wind. For to you do the many benefits of the king and his kingdom belong. Once again, the promise is for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. For theirs is the kingdom of God. For to you who are persecuted belong the great benefits and the care of the king. That's so hard sometimes to wrap our minds around. We, We know God's care and God's affection that's towards us and God's love that's towards us. But do we really live as those whose hope is anchored in this king's care? Not only now, but in the age to come. And to this, Paul would say in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, and I love this portion from verses 16 to 18. He says this, so we do not lose heart. Listen to this. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For what? And then Paul just says it like it is. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory. Beyond all comparison, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. And I want to leave us just with this today. As I mentioned earlier, I've been reading this book by a man named Joe Boot. He is a, um, a cultural apologist, and he's a theologian and a writer. And he's written this book on, called The Gospel of the Kingdom. And I want to just leave you, I read this this week, and it hit me square between the eyes. And I felt like it's kind of an intense place to leave this morning, but I bring us here nonetheless to give us to think further. There are many structures within God's creation but only two directions. We are either oriented toward God or we are oriented towards idolatry. In marriage, in family, church, state, art, science, and every other sphere, those are the structures, we will either seek to serve and glorify God in each area of life or our lives will have an apostate direction with no central place for God and his revelation. And I just felt like, while I said that's like an intense place to land, the, it's, it's a compelling statement. And you know what really, that it almost offended me when I read it, that we'll have an apostate direction. I just thought, gosh, Joe, that's a really tough statement to make. But you know what the truth is, is that we're always looking, if we're really honest with ourselves, so often as Christians, we look for that gray space that we can, that we can live within. But listen, But what the kingdom of God calls for and requires is both feet in. It's not that one in and one out. And this really speaks to that. We are either oriented towards God and his glory and towards the purpose of his kingdom or our back is turned and we're facing this way. We're not facing like this. It's one or the other. And my prayer for us this morning And as we continue through the book of Matthew, this is really our goal, is that we would so be not only challenged, but encouraged. These statements of of this good life within the kingdom, these statements of happiness, they're for us to experience. They're for you to live in. They're for us as a community to encourage each other to walk in, to encourage this low view of self, this high view of God.
in these pursuit of righteous acts, not for the sake of what we will obtain, but for the sake of the glory of God. Because as this statement so clearly makes, it's either one or it's the other. And if we are not working towards his ultimate goal, we are working against him, church. And it is easy, easy, easy to get stuck in this spot that we think is a gray area, that is a middle ground between the kingdoms. And may God give us the grace to live fully in. So this morning, stand with me please as we end. I want to pray. If you are in this space, and here's the thing, let's just take a moment Take a minute, please, and honestly do this. What are these spaces of gray that you stand within? What are these areas where you have one in and one out, or perhaps you've got both in the kingdom of the age? What are the areas, the spaces of your life that that God is calling you to step into the kingdom fully that you have not fully done? Because this morning, God wants to give you grace. He does not want to condemn you. Your heart is what condemns you. But God wants to give you grace. He wants to show you his mercy. And he wants to call you caringly into his kingdom. So let's just take a moment right now and let's reflect on this. Lord Jesus, by your spirit, would you speak to us today? Our request was at the beginning to be conformed into the image of which you have for us to be conformed into Christ-likeness and transformed. And so I pray this morning as we stand here as your people that we would receive that transformation. Holy Spirit, would you speak to us now? Show us the areas of our hearts, of our lives, Lord, where we are living in an apostate state. Forgive us, O oh God, we pray. Forgive us where we have worked against the kingdom of God. And Lord, we know that you do graciously and mercifully call us into the kingdom of your son. And Father, we remind ourselves again today in this very moment that we are positionally transferred. Whether experientially we see it, we remind ourselves that this is what is true. We are in Christ Jesus We are those who are of the kingdom of God. Now help us to live even more so. By your grace, Lord, and to the glory of your great name.